This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. I totally blame my son. About okay. Six, <laughs> about six years ago, he came to us and said that we needed to invest in alternative energies. And we started doing that. And we kind of threw our family office into that direction. And then about six months later, and he goes, well, you know what? It's going to be a long time before everyone has a solar uh, panel and we have the grid to handle it. It's going to be a long time before everyone has EVs. But it's really critical that we move in this direction fast for climate crisis sake. And the fastest way we can get there is to invest in plant-based alternative proteins. So he led that drive for our family and he asked his dad and me to watch some movies for Christmas. And we watched Cowspiracy and Forks Over Knives. And the next morning we called him and said, okay, we're vegan. What do you eat for breakfast? And since then we haven't looked back. You know, I was 54 before I learned about this because I just didn't have the information. But if you're an environmentalist and you're compassionate and you want to make a difference in the world, and of course we know there's so many reasons why people would go plant-based and vegan, and, and it's all the boxes that you would want to tick, it's hard not to, and you can't avoid the science. So there really was no other place for us to go. But if you'd asked me that morning, if I'd even have been vegetarian, I would have said no. And so information is power, correct? Absolutely. It's really interesting because you weren't always in food. Obviously, this is something that your son kind of pushed you in. But you were actually in the management and buying departments of Jordan Mosh, which I'm not familiar with, but Macy's, we all know Macy's. How was that making that type of pivot into clothing <laughs> from purses to plant-based <laughs> when you're a buyer you can buy anything it's really about negotiating and creating relationships and trying to get to the end zone together for the benefit of both people right so once i left macy's in new york and came home i started my first clothing business and then i started a home store and then in my 40s my daughter and i started a, a a line it was her idea she was really upset about the chemicals and personal care products for humans in the environment so um, she asked me to help her start a skincare line and so i i did that we created the safest full line of organic and natural personal care and home cleaning products without any harmful chemicals and because it was not about money for our family, it was about showing our daughter that she could share a message. And when having been a retailer, you don't want to sell it to a CVS for us because there's so much negotiation that has to happen. We just did direct sales and we offered consultants really large compensation to share this message for our daughter. And it blew up. We went from zero to 60 million in five years with 20,000 consultants around the country. And I believe we made a difference in the way people look at labels and things like that. So that, that was my first understanding of how social entrepreneurship can be harnessed through scaling a business rapidly to change a global issue. Wow, wow. You know, we always kind of use that saying like, oh, so-and-so went from zero to 60. No, you guys literally went from zero to 60 million. That's fantastic. And it's interesting because I'm seeing a theme here that you listen to your kids. <laughs> you follow the youth. I think that's really incredible because, you know, a lot of times with our elders, they're just like, oh, yeah, well, that person has a good idea, but, you know, they're too young or they can't figure it out. But it seems as if you really look to your children to make those like next decisions on things. Has that always been a, you know, recurring theme with your relationship with your children and family? Oh, yeah. We've gotten our best stuff from our kids, no doubt. 
and made the biggest differences in the world through them. My son is now still investing in plant-based foods, and he worked with Chris Kerr at New Crop Capital, which is the point of the spear of all plant-based food investing. So yeah, we've always looked to them. So they grew up at the feet of two entrepreneurs, and they worked along with us, and they saw the value of hard work and what could come from it. So when Ava wanted to start her business, it never crossed her mind that she couldn't do it. It was just, how are we going to do it? I mean, I remember her being in my store when she was five, and something fell off the shelf, and she looked at the girl who was working with me, probably one of the young teenagers at the high school, and she said, can you find a home for that? So yeah, they grew up understanding that business could solve a problem. Mm, yeah, yeah. That brings me to um, one of the recurring things that I always ask every guest for Superfood Sundays. Were there little things within your childhood and curiosity that could have or did indicate really where you are with plant-based food and healthy living and eating? Because I know that you said, okay, the next day that you turned vegetarian, but were there maybe like a little clue that was already there? No. No. Absolutely not. My, my clues came totally from my kids. The only clue I got was how to work hard and create something. My father was an entrepreneur. He'd been an orphan. He uh, lived in a car for a year and a barn for a year and then started his own company and became very successful. And I just learned from him the value of hard work and that you can make a difference if you try really hard. Wow. So now we've got like three generations of this happening now. Totally. And it's come full circle because about six years ago, when we first started learning about this, my parents were both kind of struggling with some issues and a bit heavy. And I told them uh, I wanted them to watch these movies as well. And they both went plant based and lost 35 pounds and better for it. They struggle with it a little bit, as you could imagine that somebody who's older would. But yeah, it's come, come full circle. That's really incredible. You being in this plant based world now, I want to ask a bit about influences because this took you a while to kind of get to this point. And you did mention your parents that they're a bit older, so there was not like just this easiest thing. But what have been some of the hardest things that you've had to deal with switching to this side and lifestyle? And then what have you had to kind of deal with socially? You know, as you can well imagine, I'm rather strong, so I never really had a problem (laughs) with it. I just put my mind to it and did it. There was just no other way. I wasn't going back. I was just going to figure it out. And I was doing that. And we were kind of concerned about the new administration and getting really frustrated with thinking that the environment would go backwards. I started a group in Rhode Island called Powered by Plants RI and with four or five other women. And we started doing every month a, a, a get together. We would do an Ask a Doc night, a movie night, cheese making class, a cooking class, a go to Whole Foods and read the labels class. And every single one ended with a potluck. And we now have, I don't know, 8,000 people on our mailing list, 50 to 150 people would show up every month. And I gathered through my own movie nights that I did first. I did movie nights every two weeks after I first learned about this because I've always been of the mind that when you have some important information, you have an obligation to share it with the people that you care about. But I gathered a list of about 200, 300 people that I had moved from animal eating to plant-based. And I shared it with my son because he was the one who was just so really distraught about the environment. And I used the vegan calculator to show him the amount of carbon and the amount of land and the amount of water and everything that was saved from the environment by having 200 to 300 people 
eating plant-based, either 100% or leaning in really hard. So I would check in with those folks. They would all say the same thing to me as, you know, I can do this at home, but it's very challenging when I go out. I'm the social pariah. I'm sitting at the end of the table negotiating with the server to get my food. My family thinks I'm odd and they don't want to be with me. So that's really what led me to start to think about Plant City. Yeah, give us a little bit more background on Plant City and how you were able to hook up with Matthew Kinney, who, if you guys aren't familiar with, like, he is literally all over the place for the past decade or two. Just really a lot of different plant-based restaurants, plant-based cooking schools, plant-based bodega in Venice. So I'm not surprised that you guys connected, but I would love to know how that came about. Interesting story that my daughter knew his girlfriend, Charlotte. And we would go to New York because she had an apartment there and we would go to all of his restaurants. And as we were in the train, we'd been negotiating which one we would go to appetizers, and which one we'd go to dinner. And then when we would come home, we'd be like, damn, we missed that food. And then along the way, we were invited to meet with Matthew to go over potentially investing in a CPG line that he had. It, it wasn't really ready but in that time we spent together, we knew that we loved his restaurants and we really liked him. And about, I don't know, six or eight months later, I saw a building because I was mentoring a young couple that was in the coffee, nitro coffee business that's really socially aware and very, very cool. And she used to work for me. And we went into this building to see if we could carve out a portion of it for them, for their coffee bar. And they left and they said, no, 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 it's, it's not going to work for us. And I thought to myself, and I leaned over to my husband, I said, that's our, that's my building. That's the one. So I literally wrote a note to Matthew. It was a one pager. This is what I want to do. I want to create the world's first plant-based food hall. It's going to be like a vegan Italy. I want to use four of my favorite restaurants of yours, put them under one roof. And he wrote back in 10 minutes and said, I'm in. Wow. And so that was in October. We signed the lease in January. And we opened in June. And since wow. then, it's been 22 months, and we've served over 800,000 guests. 14 months of that was during COVID. That's incredible. It's interesting because when it's really coming from the gut and it's really, really tapped in, it happens that quick. How much of that has been a part of your business journey where you just rattle it off and it's right there and it happens as opposed to just this long, you know, drawn out process. Cause I think a lot of entrepreneurs, including myself, sometimes we grow through this thing where it's just like analysis paralysis. And it's just like, dude, just get it out there and, and go. You know, I, I'm really glad you pointed that out because especially for women, that tends to be when Ava sold her business, she and I fully funded the first women's entrepreneurial accelerator at a U.S. college at Babson which is where she graduated and because they came to us and said, you know, women have great ideas, but they ask their brother, their boyfriend, their mother, their neighbor and the postman. And then if the wind isn't going in the right direction, they won't do it. So we wanted to kind of help move that along. So I agree with you, analysis paralysis. On the other hand, I'm very lucky. I didn't have to go through the business plans and that whole situation. I'm old <laughs> and I was able to self-fund it because honestly, Lynette, can you imagine going to someone saying, yeah, I'm going to build a 15,000 square foot vegan restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island, where there's no parking and no foot traffic. <laughs> like this, nobody, nobody would have given me money for that. So it was just a hunch. And the first weekend we opened, we served 13,000 guests in our first 72 hours. And I brought in this amazing executive chef from New York City, who I just adore 
who has worked like a dog his entire life. I think one of his restaurants had 170 people in the kitchen. I can't remember the name of it. It's right across from Macy's, actually. He, he ran Isabella's and did 2,000 brunches during lunch. I mean, he knew busy kitchens, and he came out and he said, this, this broke me. I need more kitchens, and so we ended up having to build another kitchen in the basement in 72 hours. We hired 90 people and trained them really well, and, and within two weeks, we had 200. The interesting thing is 80% of our guests are not plant-based. They just saw a picture on a friend's Instagram of a really good-looking pizza or a burrito and decided, okay, I, I want to go try that. And thankfully, we keep getting hordes and hordes of new people who are not plant-based. That's the exciting part for me, right? It's nice to preach to the choir, but when I can get beyond the choir and really make a difference, that's the step that moves me. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a really big percentage. And I think that that kind of goes to show and I get this all the time. Well, if I had this, I could have it all the time. You guys have nailed that part where it's just like, wow, this is really delicious. And not only is it delicious, but it looks good. Um, with your chefs, how many chefs do you guys have going and how is that process? I have one executive chef, one sous chef, I don't know, like nine or 10 line cooks. We still need more. Right now, I need 30 more employees. One of our four restaurant concepts isn't even open right now. It's called Makeout, which stands for Matthew Kenny Takeout. And Matthew's Makeout in California was more of like a come to the counter, order, sit down. But I wanted this to be more like a sweet green line where you could just line up and build a bowl. And before COVID, we would have eight people in that line and it wasn't enough to serve them. It was one of the most successful concepts we had. How have you been able to bring all of this to the table and serve so many people in such a fast amount of time, compounded by the fact that we've been going through a pandemic? Walk us through some of the things that you guys have gone through with that and, and how you've resolved it. Sure. So I'm really lucky, first of all, that Chef Luis Yaramillo, our chef, is a wizard and created great relationships from the minute he came to Rhode Island with all of our purveyors. We're also very lucky that Rhode Island Mushroom Company is 30 miles or 20 miles up the road. We're their largest uh, customer in Rhode Island other than Whole Foods, because as you can imagine, as a vegan restaurant, we have a lot of use for mushrooms. Our burgers are made with them. I mean, just half the things in the restaurant are made with mushrooms. So, you know, he's got that buttoned up tight. I've never worried about it. He's always got the provisions that he needs. I've been very lucky with that. Um, COVID was a huge challenge. We closed the day before our governor closed us because a lot of my employees were very concerned and heading for the door, which I totally understand. So I got together with the team and said, that's it. We're going to close tonight. And chef called me and he said, you know, Kim, we have 50 people here who can't afford to go on unemployment. And I said, well, you know what? We have an app. We got about 6,000 people on our app. We'll just announce tonight that we're going to open with takeout and delivery only. And let's see what we can do. And from that first day, we had business and it grew and it grew and it grew. And by that Friday, it was so much for the 50 people that he, chef actually had to turn the app off. So we grew that and then the governor let us have outdoor dining. And so we threw a big, huge tent in the parking lot and then they let us have some indoor dining. And then we did a huge takeout window. So it's just about spinning plates and pivoting as fast as you can without going out of control. But for a while we had outdoor dining, we had indoor dining still, we have a takeout window, we have curbside pickup and we have delivery. So we now have five ways of getting food to people. 
And by the way, we don't use Uber and all of those because they take, when you talk about margins, they take a massive amount. Mm. I feel so sorry for any small restaurant that has to take them. That is actually highway robbery. There needs to be some statutory legal limitations put on those numbers. 25% for a small restaurant. They're not even making that in the bottom line. It's highway robbery. Uh, I have 12 delivery drivers of our own on full staff. So they rotate and we usually have six on at a time. That's really admirable because like the easy way, even with DoorDash or the Ubers, they're taking so much, like it's also an effort to maintain staff. So I think that that's really awesome that you guys are doing this. When it comes to small restaurants that you just mentioned and kind of the struggles that they go to, what are some things that for a smaller, non-funded younger entrepreneur that's just really getting started and really has a cool concept and really wants to get their own little plant city in the world going. What are some good pieces of advice for them? You know, restaurants in a brick and mortar are definitely an expense. So I would say start at a farmer's market, then get a food truck and then build yourself up, right? It's how Slutty Vegan started in Atlanta, I believe, and so many others have started. And if you have a great product, lead with a great product and good service and a decent price, you should be able to, to pull it off as long as you have the business acumen and the operational excellence to be able to do it. Mm. Um, not everybody has that. And certainly I don't have it all. I've got a great team. We have 168 employees in Providence and I have 35 at the PCX, Plant City X down in Middletown. And some of those people carry skill sets where I don't have it. I'm a big vision, creative marketing kind of person and driving change from the bottom up through conversations and things like that. But the finance, there's, there's one person in charge of that and my husband helps a lot and there's somebody in charge of purchasing. But for the s small people, just the way you would bootstrap anything, just start small and work your ass off. That's the quotable, everyone. Start small and work your ass off. And I mean, and, that goes for anything, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I would also say find some advisors and some mentors that you can trust so that you're not in an echo chamber. A lot of times we think we've got a good idea and we go with it. And if we just talk to somebody else who had experience in that space, they might have been able to redirect us a little. And then the second thing I would say is risk management. Just know what the risks are and try to button up those holes if you can. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned your husband helps out with things. This was your son's idea. You had a business with your daughter prior. How do you manage? How in the hell do you manage the work-life balance where it's just like, I've been in a relationship where we were both running a business together and like, Pillow talk can be kind of like, mm, not only with your husband, but now you got like your, your kids in the game. How have you been able to balance that? So my son doesn't work actively in the business. And my daughter started with us doing the buying for the marketplace. It's basically all of our family's favorites and running social media. And she's since pulled back a little bit to do some other things. But First of all, the word balance, right? I, I have a lot of young women that I work with and I mentor. And that, that word balance, I, I don't know if it really exists. When you're at work, you have to give 100% to work. And when you're at home, you have to give 100% to the home and to the kids, and to whatever your responsibilities are. That That's the only balance that there can be as far as I'm concerned. Yes, you're going to miss things, but there's nothing you can do about that. As far as the family, there's been many times when we get going at the dinner table and, and somebody will put up like a tea for timeout and be like, okay, this is a no business dinner <laughs> table. Or this is a no business hot tub. We're going to shelve that till tomorrow. And we're just going to enjoy the sunset. 
Oh my, you, wait, you said the no business hot tub. You can't even sit in the hot tub. It's like, wait a second. What about that P&L? What just happened there? <laughs> That's incredible. How, how did that work because you've been a serial entrepreneur before motherhood? And again, like you said, you're mentoring a lot of these young women and women in general. Um, for someone like myself that hasn't had children yet, but what are your biggest pieces of advice for someone having to have a team, which is a family in its sense, and raising money and dealing with investors and dealing with just the ups and downs of that and then also dealing with the ups and downs of an infant. That's a really incredible thing and both of them have a lot of parallels. So I'm, I'm wondering, what was Kim's best practices in the early, early days? It's, it's a lot. It's totally a lot. I started my second business when I was 31 and I had a six-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And, you know, I worked in the morning from nine to noon when I had some help at home. And then I had a partner, quote unquote, who I paid to be my work partner in the afternoon. So I made that work for me to do all of the things that you were saying. That's going to be a real challenge. You're going to need help somewhere, probably both places at home and at work. But, you know, it, it can be done. There's been other people that have done it. I would say one of the challenges that I had was I, I was in a suburban community and a lot of my friends were making me feel guilty about going to work and starting a business and all that that entailed and leaving my kids in the morning with somebody else. But I remember saying that to my pediatrician and she said, you know, Kim, there are a lot of successful people that were brought up at the skirt of their mothers in New England and don't worry about it. You're doing the right thing. And I, I'll tell you what, the proof is in the pudding. I have two amazing young adults for children. Yeah, definitely. What I'm hearing right now, I'm just like, wow, this is incredible. Because I do this like with my nieces already. I have this kind of game. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. We're going to play this game called co-working. Get your iPads. <laughs> <laughs> so like, auntie, is it time to co-work? I'm like, yeah. And it's just like how to <laughs> kind of integrate that. I, I think that the dividing of the time between having some help. But what you said was really interesting to me, having a partner that's the business partner, but that's also kind of a part of it. Was the partner helping to take care of the children or was the partner just kind of picking up where you had to pull back and, and to handle with the babies? Yeah, it, it, it was a partner in name only just because I wanted to give her that level of responsibility. She was a paid partner. I never wanted to have a partner partner. She, you know, but I gave her a percentage of the profits and a, a, a pay and she ran it from noon until six when we closed. And okay. yeah, for me, that was the only way that it could work. So I could do half days with my kids. Okay. Yeah. That's a really good way to think about it. I'd love to know more about the future of Plant City. And I think we've spoken about this, or I know I've mentioned this to someone where I think a lot about fast food places with like somewhat integrity <laughs> and one of the first ones that comes to mind is in and out and then I think about Chick-fil-A because they're closed on Sundays that's nice but in and out they cut their fries from scratch they hand pat out their burgers and apparently the managers make quite a bit of money and it seems as if they don't want to expand over on the east coast and things with that being said what are you guys's plans for expansion or for CPG or just how this can kind of go because it's really taken off and you know when things take off people obviously want to scale it and get this into other places so what do you guys think about this? You know, pre-COVID, Lynette, we were a 
approached by a VC firm that wanted to build a lot of plant cities around the country and possibly beyond. And they were led by a gentleman who was former CEO of one of the largest fast food restaurant chains on the globe. And we considered it. And thankfully, my husband has a lot of experience in VC. And we decided not to work with this particular group because one of the most important things I've learned from him is you can't jump at the money because it may not be the right group for you at the time. And I'm glad we didn't um, because during COVID, the thing that scared me the most at Plant City was the winter. You know, we had all this outside dining and everything was going fine and we were socially distanced and everyone was wearing a mask. But what the heck was going to happen when winter came along? And so I started in, in the fall trying to find a place where I could do a drive through And I found this former Papaginos and got the town in Middletown outside of Newport, Rhode Island to let me put in a drive through window. And in January, in the middle of COVID, we opened the East Coast's first vegan drive through And it's been very successful, even considering it's COVID. There's not much commuting. The war colleges and the local colleges and universities weren't in. And so I know that that will just continue to grow. Um, we do have people approaching us who want to do plant cities now in, in New York and Miami and Dubai. We'll look at each one individually and other places. The guy from Denmark recently reached out to me. I don't want to go run them anywhere else. It would have to be somebody else who's willing, but it's a, it's a plug and play at this point, except it's a beast to run. It's really challenging, which is why I love the plant city X model. It's a very tight menu, just like a Burger King or a McDonald's burgers, chicken, quote unquote, air quote, chicken sandwiches, fries, gluten-free mac and cheese, superfood smoothies, shakes, and some cookies and drinks, cold pressed organic juices. Very simple menu, easy enough to replicate. But the future of fast food is that it's made, all made in-house every day. Our burgers are made from mushrooms and carrots and beets, grains and beans, hand-formed. Nothing's coming in on a truck from Kentucky, left in the freezer, thrown on a grill and put between two pieces of bread with a, a stick of styrofoam tomato and out the window. So I think that's going to be the easier one to replicate. We are looking at franchising and then we'll go from there. Um, you know, they have to be super successful and viable and push 25% to the bottom line in order to qualify to be a good franchise option for someone to make a living within that are there any plans for anything like cpg related or collaborations with different chefs or different companies or saying hey we're gonna work with this ketchup company that's already plant-based or is it just all plant city all the time so at this point um, we have people begging us for our macadamia ricotta and our butternut queso and all of that. It's not on the docket because if I stretch my chef one more inch, he's going to snap. He's opened two, possibly three restaurants and running staff and it, it, it would be too much. So that hasn't even been thought of at this point, but it would be a phenomenal business. I don't really love CPG because again, you have to sell to retailers, which I'm not fond of having been on the other end of that. Um, also, it's challenging. Coman is really, really challenging. My son was working with a very famous chef to do some product and the Coman stole recipes. And it's just, it's too challenging. I like things that I can control. And if I don't have vertical control over it, I've learned the hard way not to trust Comans. I know that's right. Nobody is ever going to care as much as you do. In our previous business, we had a shipping department that was third party. They did a terrible job and they're doing a terrible job with your reputation. 
And all you have in business is your reputation. So we had to bring it in-house, build a 100,000 square foot facility with shipping and manufacturing and move everything in-house. It was very challenging, but I would say if you can start it off that way, if it's possible, so you can control vertically everything that represents you and your brand. When you know how to do all of those things, and not to say that you need to do them, but if you know how to do them, it helps you to manage people in the business way better because you just have a complete bird's eye view of just what's happening. So if someone says, oh, that took me 30 minutes, you can remember from when you did it, like, dude, that took me five minutes. What are you doing? You know what I mean? You have to have your fingers in everything in a way. Like my last company, my CFO stole two tons of product from us, just taking one box every day and putting it in his truck and then sending it down to Florida and having the labels taken off and put back on. It's very hard. It's hard work and you have to have eyes everywhere. This happens across the board, regardless of if it's just illegal things or not. It's, it's a cautionary tale. And it's for me, as a you know, first time founder, it's very inspiring. It's a little spooky, but then I like that because then it just motivates to just really stay on the ball. And so I really appreciate your candor with your business and just your family life and everything. At this stage in my life, I just want to help other people be successful, especially where it comes to plant-based foods. I can't do this alone. None of us can do it alone. We need everybody to deploy their skill set and rise this ship up together. And so if I can be of service to anyone, say anything that helps guide them or helps them from the pitfalls, I am thrilled about that. Learn more at superfoodschool.org.